change the sermon text for today. So uh, not that it makes any difference to you. I'm going to preach uh, on something related to the Reformation. Last Sunday was Reformation Sunday, and we had our equip conference. And uh, that's always my favorite Sunday of the year to preach uh, for some reason. Uh, I love the themes coming from the Reformation. So I was planning to continue with James, and then all week long leading up to the 31st, I was seeing things online about the Reformation, and so I just... I just gave in to the urge. So rather than James, we'll be looking at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If uh, you'd like, I hope you'll turn to page 996 in these Bibles in the pews. We're going to look at uh, Scripture. What I want to do is uh, tell you some background of why we think the Bible's trustworthy and some, some things from history dealing with the interpretation of the Bible. Then we will look at, the, at verse uh, 16 and 17, those two verses. And then I want to close by giving you... Uh, a brief account of a man that we owe a debt of gratitude uh, every day when we open a Bible and read it. And it's not Martin Luther. Uh, we owe him a debt too, but this is uh, a different person. Paul's writing to his uh, pastor student, Timothy, who was a pastor in the city of Ephesus, the ancient metropolitan area. And he's writing to him a handbook, you might say, for church, how to structure the church, how to guide the church, what the priorities in that local church should be. And so in, along that theme, we come to verses 10 and following, and he talks to him about Scripture. Hear God's word. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And now for our attention today. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the fact you've revealed yourself and we pray for greater understanding of your word and how it relates to us in Jesus name amen I don't know if you ever ask yourself this question but I ask uh, I ask myself quite often is the Bible trustworthy I mean can I believe that what it teaches is really true especially if I stand as one teaching other people and that it's really a book from God but what kind of a book is it? It may surprise you to know that until the late 1800s, the Christian church, whether Protestant or Roman Catholic, the Christian church always had held that the Bible was the written word of God. Now, even with the Reformation, it wasn't an attack or a division, should I say, toward the Roman Catholic church about 
whether Scripture was the written Word of God. The issue was whether Scripture alone was sufficient, or was it Scripture plus the church, Scripture plus the Pope, etc. But there was no questioning whether the Bible was the written Word of God. So until really the, the early 1800s, that was undisputed in, in churches, Christian churches around the world. And we face serious questions. How can we know if God exists? And if there is a God, how do we know the specifics about this God? And that's where the whole topic of revelation comes up, that God reveals himself. And the Bible tells us he reveals himself in a number of ways. He reveals himself in creation, that the heavens declare the glories of God, that we can look at the created order of the world and think this, this could not have happened by accident. But that doesn't tell us anything specific. It may say, well, there are many gods. Uh, why, why the Christian God just from creation? So creation is one way God reveals himself, but then he also does through conscience, that all of us know there's a right and a wrong. Now, we, our consciences can be and are distorted, but when you think that there's not been one tribe, not one culture, not one society found on the planet that doesn't have guilt, and we were taught, I was taught in college, well, guilt is just a cultural moray based on the, what you were taught was right or wrong and then your response to it. Well, why is it universal? Well, Scripture says that through creation we know there's a God. Through conscience we know that there's a God. We see that God has revealed himself in history, particularly in his dealings with the nation of Israel and the other nations that surrounded her. Then we have the words of the prophets throughout the Old Testament and repeating phrases such as the word of the Lord came to me or thus saith the Lord. But God's fullest revelation we know came through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The word Bible means book, and it consists of two sections. This has an old covenant, and then there's a new covenant. The old covenant has 39 books in it. The new covenant, or New Testament, has 27 books in it. So there are 66 little books within the one big book, the Bible. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, uh, the books of the Old Testament are arranged in three divisions. There was the law, and there were the prophets, and there were the writings. But in the third century B.C., the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and we call that the Septuagint. And in that Septuagint, they ordered the Old Testament books a little bit differently. The books were arranged according to similar content. So you have the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, five books, the, uh, which was the, the five books of Moses. That was followed by the historical books, which was followed by the poetical books, which was followed by the prophetical books. And that's the order we use. If you look in your table of contents, basically the order of the Old Testament books that we have goes back to the third century B.C., when the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into Greek. And that's how they, they lined up those contents. Now in the New Testament, oh by the way, 
the writing of the Old Testament books covered 1,000 years. So from the time it began to be written until you get to the last Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, the Italian prophet, then that's 1,000 years. Then we come to the New Testament, and the books are divided into four different groups. You have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then there's the Acts of the Apostles. Then there are 21 epistles or letters and concluded with the book of Revelation. Those books were written within a span of a century. And so the, the earliest documents that we have today that we can trace back, the earliest were the first letters of Paul. And along with the book of James that we've been studying, we believe those were written between 48 and 60 A.D., and then the Gospels and the other books were written between 60 A.D. and 100 A.D. So overall, you have 40 authors, 40 human authors of the Bible, and it took roughly 1,600 years for all of the Bible to be written. 1,000 for the content of the Old Testament, 400 years of silence in between the close of the Old and the beginning of the New, and then about 100 years uh, of the New Testament for that to be written. So 40 authors over a period of roughly 1,600 years. But the key question we have to ask and, is, and, and answer today is, where did the Bible come from? Years ago, the New English Bible was published, and a copy was sent to the Library of Congress. And whoever with the Library of Congress handled such things wrote back to the publisher of the New English Bible and said... <clears throat> Who do we list as the author? And that's still the question we, we need to ask today. Who is the author? And we come, it has to be one of two things. It's either from the mind of man or from the mind of God. That the Bible either comes strictly from the mind of man or from the mind of God. Let me deal first with the assumption that it's from the mind of man, that it's just a human instrument. In the late 1800s, remember earlier I said that there had been unity in the church about the Bible was the written word of God up until the 1800s? Well, here's what happened. There arose a school of thought that's referred to as modernism or liberalism. Not liberalism in the political sense of the word. Don't even, not even similar. It's liberalism in a view toward knowledge and toward the Bible. And it was during a time of great optimism about human progress. It viewed that human progress would be unlimited, that we could attain a utopia just given enough time. And this, this school of reasoning arose in Germany, which is very ironic, just 300 years after Martin Luther in the same country. And it viewed the Bible as simply a collection of human writings, good literature in some cases, inspiring in the same way that Shakespeare or Rembrandt or Handel are inspiring. And they summed up the teachings of the Bible with this phrase, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It believed that our human reason in and of itself is all sufficient and that only portions in the Bible that are compatible with our reason are acceptable. So miracles, no. Do away with those. Uh, Jesus rising from the dead, no, it did away with that. Anything supernatural, you know, dividing of the Red Sea, anything like that. Uh, so it was gone. It's referred back to as a frontal attack on the Bible, 
on the scriptures. Now, much of that came crashing down with one key world event, the beginning of World War I in 1914. That unlimited human capacity and optimism was all shattered. And many of the people that, that philosophers and others that held to this were very disillusioned after that. Now, in response to liberalism, y'all still with me? Now I'm going to move to an area that affects every one of us today. It's in pretty much every denomination, most denominations, not every. And in reaction to liberalism, there was a, a group, uh, a, an approach to the Bible arose called neo-orthodoxy. Neo meaning new, orthodox being accepted teaching. So neo-orthodoxy arose as a reaction against liberalism. And it saw how inadequate liberalism was. And they said, you're not really dealing with the Bible. You are attacking the Bible rather than really trying to interpret it or understand it. Now, neo-orthodoxy understood that human capacity is not unlimited and that human reason can falter and it's not sufficient. So they said there must be more than just ethical teaching from the Bible, like be a good person or live by the golden rule, that we must experience God. That was a key phrase. Humans must experience God, but this experience is on a different plane. And it divided truth into two stories, levels. At the bottom level, you have scientific truth, mathematic truth, things you can touch and see. Religious truth is on a whole different level. And the only way to reach religious truth is through a, it's the only time I'll use air quotes, leap of faith. That's where that came from. That you Basically, it said something could be historically false, but religiously true. And so the, the response then to the Bible became, what is God saying to you through this story? It doesn't matter, they said, whether it really happened or not. Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, of course it didn't happen. But what is God saying to you through that story? Jesus raised from the dead, no, it didn't happen. Doesn't really matter if it happened or not. What is God saying to you? How does that story affect you? You see how subtle and how dangerous it is? It, it presents all sorts of problems. They viewed it as a middle ground between liberalism and what the church had stood for. And that basically the Bible becomes a witness or an instrument of revelation. It becomes the word of God as God impresses it upon you as you hear it. But they concluded the Bible is the word of man, not the word of God. So here are some questions that remain unanswered if you hold to a neo-orthodox position. And the obvious one is how can we know what parts of the Bible are trustworthy and what parts are not? How can we know which aspects have to do entirely with salvation and which are only matters of history? Because often the two are intertwined. That's why Luke and Matthew and Mark and John spend so much time saying who the emperor was, what took place that year, when Jesus was born, description of the crucifixion, where the tomb was, the Roman seal, 
It's so intertwined with history that could be verified. And the Apostle Paul said, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we of all people are most to be pitied. And our relatives are in hell, and, and we are imposters promoting a lie. All that was based on history, the history of the crucifixion and resurrection. So if we don't know which parts are trustworthy, it becomes very subjective. Also, if the Bible's references to the physical world and the history are not trustworthy, why in the world would we believe what it says on issues of salvation? You say, I live by the golden rule. Well, so what? God didn't tell me to do that. I haven't experienced that when I was listening. If you can't trust what it teaches about Christ and his ministry, why do you think the Ten Commandments would hold true today? So on matters involving eternal destiny, this is very shaky ground to stand on, to hold a neo-Orthodox position. Also, you have the question, can other things become the Word of God? What about Shakespeare? Uh, what about some movie you see? What about mu music that moves you? And you could walk out saying, God really spoke to me through that. I experienced him uh, through, that, uh, through that dramatic presentation that I saw. But regardless, the conclusion is the same. The mind of man is the primary source of Scripture, and the Bible is man's word about God rather than God's words about us. And so with the conviction of the Reformation, now I want to move to this passage, this passage in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes to Timothy, as I told you earlier, and as a pastor he's talking to him, but also as a Christian, all scripture, he says, is breathed out or revealed by God. We use the word inspired. All scripture is inspired by God, which literally means God breathed. It owes its origin and its contents to the divine breath, to the spirit of God. And so the human authors, I told you there were 40, uh, 40 human authors. They were guided by the Holy Spirit, but the spirit did not suppress their personalities he raised it to a higher level of activity. So it, it was not as though they became uh, robots or, or human dictation. Yeah, we used dictation. I was thinking I just used a 20-year-old term. But yeah, that's on, that's on uh, uh, Windows 10. It's got dictation. So you, they, they didn't just go into a trance and write things down. God used their personalities. So you have, like Luke, who wrote most of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Uh, if you lay out page by page, it's most of the New Testament. A physician, powerful uh, talents in the area of observation, writes with great detail. When he tells about someone's illness, he would describe the illness in a way that someone who wasn't a physician could not. You get to the book of Acts, he obviously was very acquainted with nautical terms. When he's describing the ships that Paul would be on and shipwrecked, it, it's, it's wind direction, it's soundings, it's all these things that you would know from that experience. God used his personality. Then you think of King David writing most of the Psalms, not all of them, but many of them, and he was a, a poet. He was a musician, uh, the musician king, and you, you see that come out. Or whether it was the Apostle Paul who had the best education that money could buy in his day. And he's writing of these lofty things. And even Peter says some of what Paul writes is hard to understand. So the human personalities come through, but it's still God-breathed. 
And he tells us that all Scripture is useful for four things. If you look there at verse 16, it's useful for teaching. It imparts knowledge. It teaches us about God, about Christ, about life, eternity. So we learn from the Bible, but then it reproves us. These are issues. Uh, these are warnings which come forth from the Scriptures that are issued by the Word concerning doctrine and conduct. Dangers are pointed out. The do nots, do not covet, do not steal or bear false witness or murder, do not love the world. Now, if we only get to that point in the Bible, and that seems to be where many people, they only view the Bible in that light, it will seem legalistic and negative. But that's only one of the purposes. So it's, it teaches, it reproves, it corrects. If reproof points out what's wrong, then correction is the positive part that comes alongside and here picks us back up again. It's like this. It teaches us, and here I'm standing, and then it knocks me down where I've messed up, and then it pulls me back up and says, let me help you get back on your feet, and it restores us like this, and finally, it trains in righteousness. Now, a good coach, and I, I, if you played high school sports, uh, and you watch films, you talk about a a demoralizing situation. You made a mistake, but a good coach, Don only says, run that back, run that back. You know, what were you doing over there, Jones? You were, look at you on the ground right there. Back it up, back it up, show it again. And so it's, it's, it's reproving, said, you're not doing what we told you to do. Now, what will a good coach do? Let me show you how to do it right. Now, next time it happens, you do this. Last of all, trains in righteousness. The teacher must train his people. And it equips us for service. The scriptures alone lead us to Christ, says First Peter. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So the Christian life begins with the new birth. Peter says we're born again through God's word. I love to hear testimonies. One of the high honors I have as an elder in this church and as a pastor is I've heard hundreds of testimonies through the years of people coming to join the church. And we'll ask, well, tell us how you came to know Christ, just in your own words. And some people can verbalize it better than others, but I've heard young kids, I've heard teenagers, I've heard elderly people, I've heard middle-aged, heard people that seemed to be very successful and life appeared to be easy, I've talked with people who had gone through tragedy and they basically, through a compulsion, came to church. They had nowhere else to turn. I remember talking to one fellow who was a recent college graduate and he had come here from college and he was a very good athlete and a young woman who was in the church was also a good athlete and a, a group of people would play basketball at the old health club. And he came, and, and she uh, gave him a Bible. And <laughs> I'm not recommending this, but he came to faith in Christ driving between here and Statesboro and reading the Bible at the same time <laughs> on I-16. <laughs> Don't try that at home. When I asked him, what do you do in college? He said, he summarized four years with this phrase, I was drunk. That's how he summarized four years of his life. Radically converted. My point is, 
that even though all the circumstances were different, the ages and stages of life, the life circumstances, everyone, though, said it's through the Word of God. For me, it was hearing John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I'd heard a lot of other things, but God used that verse over time, thinking about that, to open my eyes to what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Luther experienced this. He had come to Christ as he studied the book of Romans and understood that the just shall live by faith. So the scriptures is what God uses to draw us to himself, but also to nourish our souls. Now I want to spend the last few minutes telling you about this person to whom we owe a great debt pretty much every day. Because when we think of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, typically Martin Luther's name is first and foremost. But there's another name who's, who's not near as well known, but he should be, especially each time you pick up or read a Bible, and that's William Tyndall. William Tyndall. Luther was in Germany in the 1500s. William Tyndall was in England. Their ages were pretty close. They both were training to be Roman Catholic priests, though in different countries. Tyndall studied at Oxford and at Cambridge. He was a true scholar, and probably like all of us here, he was fluent in seven languages, and he was extremely proficient in Hebrew and in Greek when it came to the Bible. As I mentioned, he was a priest, but he had a driving compulsion. How this originated, I don't know. Perhaps those that study his life closer do know, but his compulsion was to teach English-speaking men and women the good news of justification by faith by putting a copy of the English Bible into their hands. If you're like me, you're thinking, what's radical about that? What's unusual about that? You've got to remember, there were no copies of the Bible in English. The Mass used the Latin the Latin language uh, of the Bible. Now, when you think, why would that have been controversial? You have to give credit to the Roman Catholic Church of wanting to keep the Bible in a particular language for fear. They feared that if everyone has the Bible, you'll end up with all sorts of wacky interpretations. They were right. Look around today. But their methodology was wrong. But it was a desire to protect the scriptures and to protect what was taught from them. Well, Tyndall felt, no, the wiser course of action is, is let people read the Bible for him or herself. So he, well, in six years after Luther had posted his 95 theses there in Germany, in 1523, he, he went to the bishop in, in London and asked for permission and the funds to translate the New Testament into English, and he was denied. So he left England and he went to Germany where he could find some freedom, and from there his first translation from the Greek into English was compiled, and it was smuggled back into England. The religious authorities got as many of those copies as they could and burned them, and they made plans to find and silence uh, Tyndall. 
but he continued to work in, in secret, or at least away from where people knew where he was, and he was revising the New Testament and translating the Old Testament. This went on for several years until he was finally imprisoned, ultimately condemned as a heretic, and delivered over to be executed. And that execution took place on October the 6th, 1536. If you think about how the Reformation we look back as having started in October of 1517, not that it's 19 years later, so not a lot of time had passed. So at age 42, at age 42, William Tyndall was strangled and then his body was burned. But moments before his death, he cried out, and this is what some people remember, his most famous saying, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. So he died that you and I, as English-speaking people, could have the Bible in our own language. God answered his prayer. Two years, just two years after Tyndall was executed, King Henry VIII required every local church, every parish church, to have one copy of the whole Bible in English. And if you see some drawings from that time, Often it will show this big Bible, and sometimes the preacher standing behind the pulpit, sometimes the Bible's on a table, and it's got a chain going to it. They literally, history tells us, were chained there so people would not steal them. The chain to remain in the church. So I just close with this. Perhaps you, Christian, are going through a dry time that you may say, I just feel far from God. I feel fruitless. Um, I'm distant. Well, if the Bible describes God's word as, as sweeter than honey to our mouth, and Christ said we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth, and as Peter said, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk, we need an intake of the scriptures. And maybe it's going from zero to 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day and, and trying to focus your attention and, and read and pray through that or, or listen to someone else uh, read it. But I would, I would urge you uh, to, to go back to the Word of God. It is trustworthy. Uh, we can depend on it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for people like William Tyndall. It's beyond our imagination to imagine such times of where translating a Bible into the language of the people would cost a person his life. But to whom much is given, much is required, and we, we have such easy access to this. We pray that you would impact our lives with your word, that it would be beneficial and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.